This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly Warthog Man Cave. As you know, in the piney woods of north central Florida, God's country, by golly, we aim to please. And we are going to bring you a great show today with a very tough subject. We've covered it before. I don't think we've moved a needle. I hate to say that, but the needle sure needs to be moved. We're talking about health care, one of the giant needs you'll have if you live long enough, like yours truly here, who lived 81 years. That's too long, don't you think, to have to live in jeopardy at the end of your line and not know who pays, what pays, and all that kind of business. Now you work and what system's available. We are, of course, in the Mellon Law Studio. Mellon Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gator, and we are protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention. Locally owned crime prevention, security, always go local. And all of our local sponsors, they did build their businesses. They did build their business from scratch. Shoot GTR, fine shooting range, built from scratch. Uh, style cuts, fine. Get your ears set out, as my father used to say. Fine, locally owned business. Support those who support us. Well, we've got a story to tell. Mostly we tell stories, and that's what you listen to. The story of healthcare. You know, as you know, many of you who track my mother's saga, who lived to be 107 and a half, and I think just died because there wasn't anything else to do. I didn't know her ever to have been sick. Uh, she did not have, so to speak, doctors available when she was a young girl. She was be- born three months after the Titanic sank and uh, sailed right along through the Depression and World War II and came out and lived on. When she was my age, I thought about this the other day, uh, she had another quarter of a century of living to do. It's quite amazing. But she's an exception. She's very, and he used to ask the physicians, what in the world did it? Who knows? Genetics? Good fortune? I do know this. She had a tremendous faith in the spiritual. She did not suffer anxiety the way I do, for example. So there's a lot of mysteries about this. But the big thing we got to deal with is a healthcare system. And we have been tracking for you about how it has become a monopoly. Hospital Corporation of America. A couple of good friends of mine are hospital administrators. They even teach it at the universities. But what has that done to the availability of health care? How is the government involved? This is mostly over the head of people. So we brought in uh, Dr. Marion Mass here, who is, uh, I think, in Philadelphia, to uh, in the frosty land. And if she's an Eagles fan, wah, too bad. They're not going, baby. They are not going. Not <laughs> I should. Huh? I, I should. I, I should finish the whole segment just for fun. Like my son, when he was in eighth grade, he that's when the Eagles were in the Super Bowl against the the Patriots, and he wrote this great poem. He had to do an assignment of writing a, a poem, and it was hilarious. You know, <laughs> it's it's that's what we should finish with. But I'm an Eagles fan. I'm married to a Dolphins fan. Does that help you? Okay, we'll let that go then. Uh, okay. Listen, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'm going to stand back and just listen for a while as you tell the story of, first of all, you know, who you are and how you got involved. And I think this has gotten worse probably in your career. Um, The doctor friends I have say it's getting worse. By that, I mean medical care, uh, monopolies, all that business, which you're going to talk to us about. Take it away. Oh. Take it away. Wow. So first of all, we, we can make this a banter and a back before a back and forth, because like what I want your 
what I want your listeners, I want you to put, I want your listeners to put themselves in the place of being patients. So, I mean, everyone in earshot right now should ask themselves, are you happy with your access to medical care? And, you know, I, I'd like to make sure that we're splitting the definitions of medical care and health care. I mean, you know, healthcare is kind of what the big beast gives us, right? The system, you know, the insurance, the, uh, the paperwork, that big gaping maw that none of us can see where the money is going. But medical care is like, you know, if, if you're sick and you really need something, because I want to make sure that from the very beginning, we, uh, we indicate to your listeners, even though I can be harsh on the hospital systems when they're monopolized and when they're predatory and when they're not being transparent and honest and open, we need hospitals, don't we? I mean, sometimes we get appendicitis. Sometimes, you know, we need to have a baby and a hospital is a necessary thing. You know, I'm a pediatrician in the Philadelphia region mm-hmm. and I worked in a hospital system. I still work for a hospital system, a large hospital system in Philadelphia. I don't speak for them. But we need hospitals. We need, at times, medications. We certainly need physicians to diagnose us. We need nurses to aid and, and help in um, the, the carrying on of care. We need pharmacists to help dispense our medications and give us even more information when we need the medications. There's a lot of medical care that's needed. And I think we've gotten to such a bad spot in America where, I mean, most people... I'll ask the listeners, and they're probably nodding to themselves. Do you trust the medical care when you go to approach the system? And I think most of us were a little skeptical even before COVID hit. And then once COVID hit, we were even more skeptical, right? Um, So, I mean, I'll ask you, I'll throw the question back at you. Do you feel like you have good access to medical care? I do personally because I know so many of the doctors personally. I know how to work the system. By that, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but I mean I know how to get around in the system because I've known these guys for years. But at the same time, they're telling me they're quitting. One of my very good friends, orthopedic surgeon, they had their own group, if you will, did quite well. He reached his 80s. He didn't want to quit. You know this story before I even tell it. He saw about 15 patients a day. And uh, along came the acquisition of their practice by the big corporation. And he said to my friend, uh, you're only seeing 15 people a day. You need to see 30. He said, well, these people I've taken care of for 30, 40 years. And I spend time with them. And it means something to them. And I know how to get them to another <clears throat> doctor if they need to go. Doesn't matter. Need to double it up. We need to go. Well, he quit. This quitting story is all too frequent in my ear right now. Losing good guys. And then hospitalists come in on the other end and come and see you in the hospital. It's not your doctor. And that little difference in patient care is one of the things I hear about doctor. Uh, I hear that a lot. And uh, maybe that is what I'm most sensitive to. I guess yes. personalization. Not, not necessarily that if you do, like your doctor, oh, that, that's the most famous line, I guess. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. I've heard that so many times um, as, as a bad point in the, in the day when it's, you know, everything went the wrong direction. But you don't necessarily keep your doctor. And it doesn't matter one bit whether your doctor likes you or you like your doctor. Is there truth to that? Yes, there is truth to that. Actually, let's start with a, a statistic that might shock many of your listeners. In 2021, guess how many physicians left the practice of medicine in America? Take oh, a I, wild guess. You, I, 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 I jump off a bit. I don't know. <laughs> uh, 117,000. There's there's just under a million licensed physicians in America. And, you know, like I maybe this number is somewhere to be found. If anyone finds it, let me know. But I go around digging for things and I can't always find them. Even though we have a, a 
just under a million licensed physicians in America. And now <laughs> like you're taking roughly 10% away from that in, in 2021. And people could argue over the reasons why, and we can get to that. But not all of those licensed physicians actually practice medicine. So in addition to people that are just completely leaving that, that we can see and we can calculate, there's a lot of physicians that leave and go into industry. You know, the other day, and, and I still practice part-time, um, I think doing part-time keeps me sane. You know, most physicians, they use the term burnout or moral injury because they don't like what they see happening. So they're, they're very frustrated. And I think if you, the more you work full-time, the more frustrated you are, the more likely you might be to leave. I'm very blessed. I don't have to work full time. And I think it's kind of kept me a little, uh, a little insulated from some of that burnout and moral injury. But there I was working part time. I was stitching up a patient and I didn't even know the patient's father was a physician. And um, he, you know, he told me he's a, he was a pediatric oncologist. He takes care of cancer kids or he did. He worked for five years and he left. He said, I didn't think this was, it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And, and then he went off into industry. He works for a pharmaceutical company now. There's a lot of physicians that take that leap. Um, I just talked to a friend the other day that said the same thing. Look, I wanted to go practice and I'm not going to be able to, and I'm, I'm looking to industry right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of the primary care arenas, they can't, there's physicians that are not really even able to pay their mortgage if they're the breadwinners of the family. So they leave and they go off into industry and then you lose more people and you're leaving more work for everyone else. And as you pointed out, your uh, orthopedic friend who back in the day was able to give very personalized medicine. And if you asked him, he probably would tell you when he went to medical school and did residency and at the beginning of his career, the physicians were, they had autonomy. They were able to lead the show and lead the medical care. And, you know, I call it, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, and I don't know if any of your uh, peeps out there that are listening are on Twitter, but I'm at mass underscore Marion. And, you know, in my little bio, it says uh, scrubs, not suits, you know, because what, what has happened in medicine is the suits have taken over. So people that have no medical training are telling everyone else what to do and we see it in so many different venues you're right like the hospital buyouts and um i believe you you came across maybe my profile and and i'm doing this interview because of an article i wrote in um, i have it pulled up on my computer here in uh, the daily caller and it talks about healthcare consolidation it actually specifically mentions uh, hca one of the biggest monopolies of hospitals in the united states they own almost 50 hospitals in Florida. It's a Tennessee-based company. You know, think about what that means. You know, you pointed out, like, you live in a land where people started their own business and they keep things local. If almost 50 hospitals in Florida are owned by a Tennessee company, and by the way, it's a for-profit, you know, it, it's a for-profit company, right. you know a lot of the resources from those Florida hospitals are flowing back to Tennessee. They're not staying in your community. So when we started consolidating in healthcare and we consolidated, not just at the hospital level, then the hospitals, they started buying up the doctor practices because of, uh, because they, they could use those doctor practices as money makers. And then they could tell your friend here, here's how you're going to practice. You're, you can't be personal anymore. You got to rush around. You got to see all these many patients. And there were a lot of things happening at the same time, right? You know, physicians had more and more paperwork over time. So they were sold the bill of goods that if you, uh, if you sell out to the hospital, we'll take care of a lot of that paperwork for you. So along came the suits and the famous last words right, right. <laughs> might have sounded something like, you don't worry about the business. Let us take care of the business for you. And in a sense, that's the problem with all of healthcare in America in a 30,000 foot view. You know, the government, big insurance companies, big hospitals, you know, the people that control your pharmaceutical benefits, they came along and they're like, let us handle the business details here. And we lost sight of where the money's going in a hole in America because. 
we all know, you just pointed out, healthcare is less personal. It's less local. You have access, but I bet a lot of your listeners struggle to find access to a physician. Physicians are leaving. So in a sense, we're all getting less, aren't we? We're, we're getting less of a product. And it's no secret that we've all been paying more. Now, you're on Medicare, so you paid into the system after a while, you know, over a long while, and you're collecting your Medicare benefits. Um, and so you have access to what you can get through Medicare. But people that are pre-Medicare age, a lot of them struggle. A lot exactly. of them struggle to – the okay. bills are are going up for them, the cost for, you know, our young families. And then if you look at um, – if you look at wage growth among Americans, it's an increasing percentage, especially among middle to low wage earners. How much is going towards health care? And to be quite honest, where's that money going? A lot of it's hidden because there's so little transparency. And I'm a, an open person. I'm an honest person. I'm not going to snow you and say that I know something when I don't. I can't even follow some of the money sometimes. I mean, I've, I've been trying to for years now, almost a decade, but you can't see where the money's going because it's hidden. And the more monopolized we get, the more power the, the, the consolidated insurance companies get, the consolidated hospital systems get, the big pharmaceutical companies get, the pharmaceutical middlemen, the supply chain, everything has become consolidated over a time period. And then when you have that consolidation, you have monopoly power, you can bend the rules to your way. So uh, we can talk about, you know, you look like you're going to ask a question and do so. But at some point, we should make sure that we have the discussion about just hospital price transparency, because that alone has been a gigantic odyssey. Well, I don't understand it when I get the bill from United Healthcare. Um, this is not a bill. You may be billed, however, you know, and, and I have no idea. I just wait around and see what happens. But my particular age group, when we retired, I was a college professor. We had a consortium. We were, we were able to go out and sort of bargain as a group. Um, the particular insurance package that they offered my age guys turned out to be so good. They don't offer it anymore. You know, they took it away and they called it something else. Oh, you want that advantage plan? I told all my buddies, no, you don't. There's no advantage for you. There's an advantage for them, but there's no advantage for you. And uh, that has also been a kind of a shell game. So that combined with um, the physicians themselves are getting burned out. And then the what do you pay and what plan do you get and and. uh all that also gets confusing. And then try to get an appointment just as an average Joe. You alluded to it a moment ago. I know a lot of people, um, but a lot of people I know don't. They got. They try to get, for example, they need to get an MRI. Well, guess what? You don't get an MRI for three months. We can't get you in. Or get an MRI with a pacemaker. Oh, wait a minute. We only do pacemaker MRIs on such and such days. So that extends. All this business is out there, you know, working the system every day. Um, that's just one with which I have some familiarity. Um, the uh, CAT scan, the MRIs, those things require referral, as you know, from your primary care then that guy, he's in the, is he not in the uh, queue like everybody else? If your primary care guy says, take my patient, needs an MRI. Is that patient got any special advantage because his doctor, as opposed to Dr. Bill, recommended him? Probably not. So whatever's available in terms of guys who can do that, that examination. So that's another thing. I got a couple of a bunch of questions coming. Um, what did COVID do to this? Make it worse? Make it better? 
You know, any comment on that? Yeah, uh, COVID. <laughs> you know, I was kind of hopeful when we saw some things happening with COVID that people would start to understand how bad everything was. And there was a period for where we did see that, right? You know, um, I think healthcare is, it can be very human, of course, right? You know, so I think people started to see that patients were suffering. Uh, people started to think about like with a lot of people getting sick, they started to think about like what an awful thing it would do. It, it would feel like to be sick and how vulnerable you would feel if you couldn't get care. And I think we need to kind of hold on to that as a concept, because if we don't come along and fix some major things in America, if we don't remedy some major things, we're going to keep on going where we're paying more and getting less because that's been our trend. It, it, there's there's not been a reversal from that trend. I think COVID in itself, it exposed how um, it, it exposed a lot of rifts of trust in the whole medical system. And it exposed how involved the government is. And well, I'm not a, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I've got doctor friends who, who tell me I had to take the COVID shot. I didn't want to take the COVID shot, but I was told if I was going to work for a hospital, Corporation America, I was going to take the COVID shot. And so even they become suspicious that what who's in cahoots here with whom, you know, and we go all the way back to the Fauci thing, and that's not good for the country. Um, no, it's not. Because you know, the truth of it is, is I'm a pediatrician. So in terms of the, the COVID vaccination, it's very disturbing to me that uh, – the pediatric entities, the powers that be, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, the American Board of Pediatrics, uh, you know, the CDC. Um, it's disturbing to me that everyone is pushing the COVID shot on, especially kids, because I can tell you what that's doing to parents is it's having them distrust the whole system. You know, so I wrote a uh, an article for the group independent women's forum that was called medicine best administered personally, you know, just as we discussed, you know, like personalization, I did four years in primary care. And when I was there, we, we took patients that did not want vaccines, but it was never my uh, goal to just shove vaccines down a parent's throat. It was my goal to say, okay, look, I can understand why you would question your baby getting a hep B vaccine when they're a baby. I mean, how likely is your baby to need a blood transfusion or to have unprotected sex before their age X? So why are we giving the vaccination as, you know, to infants? It, it's a reasonable question, but the knee jerk response for many pediatricians is like, just do as we say, just follow the rules. And you can actually see in America, when you open up this article, medicine best administered personally, you can see that most American parents with children under age five are not following the rules. At the time that I wrote the article in September, the best information that I have, and I, I haven't been able to find any updated, although it must be hidden somewhere in some little portion of the CDC, but it was around 10% of parents with children under five were getting the COVID vaccination for their children. Now stop for a minute and think what that means. You know, what, what, that's, what that's telling us is that 90% of children under age five didn't have a COVID vaccination. And I can tell you that the children under age five are not suffering from not having those COVID vaccinations because they're not getting very, very sick and hospitalized in large droves from COVID, even though they're unvaccinated. But most parents that were in that position that chose to deny their child of getting the COVID vaccine, most of them just take the tactic of, well, look, this is a new vaccine. Why would I get this for my child? I'm going to wait and see what happens. And they've waited and they've seen, and they've seen that their child is fine, most of them. But then there's a subset of those parents that distrust the system so much that they decide I'm not going to get any vaccinations. And I think that's also a dangerous situation. Measles is not a pleasant disease in childhood. No. A child gets measles and the... There's information on measles in the article, and it talks about the outbreak that we had here in Philadelphia in the 1990s, where there were two churches that were unvaccinated. 
I believe there were either six or nine children between those two churches that died of measles in the 1990s. Measles is not, let's just get it over with as a disease. It's, it's a very serious disease in children. And the article started out with me meeting a, sorry, my, I'm sitting here scrolling up on, on the video because no my son in cop. My son in college keeps on texting, so I'm trying to get rid of his. I'll just ignore the texts that are coming through. They always do this when I'm on a show. It, it started out with the interaction that I had because we did have a measles outbreak here in Philadelphia. Uh, we had one back in late summer, and we had another small one. And this is where the public health doctors are quite useful because they're trying to get a hold of the outbreak and, you know, um, Make sure that you contain it because measles, besides being an agent that causes a lot of sickness among children, it's extraordinarily contagious. I believe I might have hyperlinked it in the article, but um, Portland, Oregon is a known bastion of non-vaccination in general. Mm-hmm. And a couple years back, there was a Portland Trailblazers game where someone came, an unvaccinated person, didn't know that they were in the early stages of measles. And I believe there were like 20 people in the stadium that ended up contaminated and got measles. And it was almost all unvaccinated people that got the measles. And like it, it, because you don't have symptoms in the early stages of contagiousness, then you can spread it and then you have a problem on your hands. And, you know, like we usually give vaccinations for measles at age 12 months, but every baby under the age of 12 months, you know, we have to consider those babies as possibly having been exposed when they come in with fever, cough, um, watery eyes, which are some of the first symptoms of measles. And, you know, because measles can be pretty severe, now you've given the whole medical system another something to be on top of. And I, I don't, my response to this is not everyone must get measles vaccination because I do really honestly think that most children benefit from measles vaccination and we benefit from it as a population. But when we, when we pushed COVID so hard among kids, that's when we got that little peel off of people that said, no, I'm not getting any vaccinations. And there are some childhood diseases for which you can suffer tremendous repercussions. So I, I met this mother and she, her child had to come in and, and be hospitalized at a time when we had a measles outbreak in the hospital. And I explained to the mother, okay, well, you know, we, we're going to have another problem because you indicated that your child is unvaccinated. And so your child is now going to be at risk for measles because of the outbreak that we have going on right now. And I explained to her what measles looked like in children and how dangerous it was. And I talked to her a little bit about that 1990 outbreak in Philadelphia and how, you know, it was a total of nine children that died, I believe. But um, when I sat down and I did that very personally and I didn't get angry at her, she said, thank you. She said, thank you for explaining. No one explained before. They just got mad at me for not wanting the vaccine. They just kicked me out of the practice. And I think we, we have to understand as physicians, why patients are frustrated and angry. We can't just do the knee-jerk response, but it's also helpful for patients to understand when you're the doctor, and now 70% of us are employed by someone, you don't necessarily have tons of time to sit down with every patient. Sometimes I find those moments. I do urgent care pediatrics. I, I call it treat and street. I don't do primary care anymore. I have the sick patient that comes in, I take care of what they have going on at the time. But during the course of any shift, I usually find a couple patients that I know need something a little bit more personal and extra. And I try to find that time to take for them. I don't always succeed at it because, you know, you have busy nights like I did last night. But when I do that, I find that patients respond to that because I think that's what they really need more than anything else. So how do we get back to where we can administer that personal medicine You know, like one of the main things I say that we have to do in healthcare is we have to cut out the glut. I mean, for your listeners, they're frustrated because they don't necessarily get that time like they had before. Like your friend, the orthopedic surgeon that retired, was able to give to his patients. But I think the patients and the physicians have to fight the glut of paperwork that we all have to deal with. 
you know, right now physicians spend two thirds of their time dealing with busy work, paperwork, things that are imposed upon us from above, whether that's the insurance company imposing it, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid imposing it, the government imposing it, our states imposing it. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do that's obstructing our time with our patients. So like if, if, you know, people always say, what are the three things that you need to do to fix healthcare? Well, one of the three that I say is cut the glut. There, there's a lot of paperwork that we have to do. Um, you referred to this when you said uh, like trying to get a CAT scan or an MRI, but one of our you know big bloody bits of paperwork, primary care physicians are spending 14 hours a week on something called prior off. It, it's kind of like the mother may I of medicine. You know, pa- <laughs> patient wow. needs. A, <laughs> I know that's an old fashioned game, right? I played it when I was a kid. I'm no spring chicken, yeah. uh, but your doctor wants you to have a test. Your doctor wants you to have a medication and along comes their insurance company, usually through their pharmacy benefit manager, if it's a medication. Uh, and then they say, no, you know, you can't have that until you fill out and deal with this paperwork and you have to jump through all these different regulatory hoops. You know, there's, there's, it's actually shocking that the insurance company has so much ability to block the care and the insurance company is probably in a way making money off of this process first of all because there's lots of necessary care for which they're they're taking the time out so they don't have to pay for that right so they get to keep their money and their money well, on we, sure have listener, we have a listener for example says my hospital statement <clears throat> my <clears throat> er visit two weeks ago was thirty four thousand dollars my hospital statement for my ER visit two weeks ago, thirty-four thousand more to go. What was it about? I mean, he didn't pay thirty-four thousand. You know, those kind of mystery charges are what you're kind of talking about. How do we get? Because there's another question here: Are we going to fill this void with nurse practitioners or something that is functioning for all practical purposes as a, as a physician, but it's not a physician? Is that going to fill in some of the blanks. So we got a lot of questions. We we'll have to take a break here because I got to do the weather. But those are just a couple. Uh, can hospital physicians, hospitalists or nurse practitioners or um, you know these kind of people deliver the kind of health care that people will trust that will help them? And um, I don't know the answer. I, I think there's more and more of it, I think. I don't know the answer. I'm talking about Dr. Marion Mass, who's in Philadelphia, who apologizes for being an Eagles fan. Oh, I didn't know. He <laughs> didn't do that. <laughs> and we'll be right back with the weather in a moment. And then you put your questions on the chat board here, and we'll pass them along. We'll be right back with Ward's weather in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. 
And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Ward's Weather Report brought to you by Lewis Oil. By God, fossil fuel. Imagine that. Gasoline. Go fill up at Chevron. You'll have Lewis Oil on your side. Well, well, well. We've got mild weather here in God's country. We are not deluged the way Los Angeles is. Can you believe it? Of course you can. Everything is sliding downhill in the Pacific Ocean. So we're not getting that kind of rain here. We have gotten a little frosty night now and then. Other than that, we're enjoying Florida weather. We feel sorry for those of you who can't. And we are going to be watching the bowl game in Kansas City uh, and all that business uh, and and, uh, uh, San Francisco and hoping they got good weather and we'll have a good game. That's the big event. And I can't believe that you will even consider uh, bundling up for something like that. They don't do it in Philadelphia, by golly. They don't let the weather stop them there. But we're talking with Dr. Mary Mass about subjects that have really gotten more complicated, it seems to me, over the last year, and more and more monolithic, more and more monopolistic, and less and less, how shall we say, based upon the market model. I keep hearing about the market model. Competition. I don't see it. Now, if you have any questions you want to run by our guest today, uh, put them in the chat box here, and we'll pass them along. We just finished talking about COVID, COVID's influence. It's made people more suspicious of a system they didn't understand in the first place. That's not good. I had measles as a kid. I had mumps on both sides. I had chicken pox. What can I say? You know, that's a kid. You got to be lucky. Also, remember the day my mother said, wow, you guys are lucky children. I said, why, mother? When you go to school today, you're going to get the salt vaccine. Polio is over. Man, I couldn't believe it. So many people in the iron lung. I was petrified of the iron lung. So things do happen but you got to kind of put your shoulder to the rock. So the other thing we've been talking about off camera here, which I think we can pick up on, is the politicalization of medicine. And we have examples of that here. You've been following them on the show. We know what has happened, that all of a sudden we are replacing meritocracy with diversity, equity, and inclusion which is a code word for the average. Dr. Mast, have you run across this subject before? Have you thought about this? <clears throat> I, I have. I don't tend to write about this. Um, for listeners, if you, you, you want to go backwards and follow some of the stuff that I've done, I've published in a lot of uh, national newspapers, and I did a lot in my own local newspapers here. And um, it was like through the USA Today Network. Uh, <laughs> although I will say, I think, I think they kind of went a little woke themselves. Um, there's a, I think that there's a push-pull movement on this diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, I, I do think America looks different now than it did before. Uh, you know, I noticed that in my own community, uh, that there's people from many different nations here. But that's been our history. I do think it's helpful for patients. You know, we talked about trust and uh, the necessity of trust in medicine. 
I do think that patients tend to trust physicians, nurses, if they can form a common bond with them. So if, for instance, you have a doctor that looks like you, comes from your background, you may feel like a comfort, and then you can build a a bond of trust with them. But the other half of the equation is, is you can't pick doctors based on what they look like or what their background is. I mean, we shouldn't be doing that in education, period. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, I have two sons who are engineers, and I sure don't want bridges and uh, rockets and planes. We saw the whole problem with the planes recently. I don't want things being designed by people just because they came from a certain background. I think if you're you're looking at two people in, in medicine and you want to choose choose them, uh, choose between the two, and you're looking to have a patient population that feels comfort among a certain doctor, as you meet the criteria, then that's great. But I also think if you push it too far, you end up in a situation that's bad for minorities because people will take a look at them and think, are you here because you're qualified or are you here because you're a minority? And that does harm for our well-qualified minorities. Um, a few years back when we had our last uh, gubernatorial election, my favorite candidate was actually, well, of course, you know, like I'm going to go for the doctor, right? There's a cardiothoracic surgeon named Nietzsche Zama that ran, and he's from the country of Cameroon in Africa. And Nietzsche uh, trained at some of the best institutions in our country. I, I know he spent some time at Harvard. And nowadays, I think everyone is questioning Harvard because they're wondering if it went too woke and if the people who were there really belonged there, right? Uh, there's certainly a lot of smart people at Harvard, and Nietzsche was one of them at one point. But Nietzsche fought very hard with another man named Kenny Zhu. Um, I, I believe he's Korean. Uh, he's not a physician, but I think he's a PhD. And the two of them pushed really hard and got the University of North Carolina Medical School to push back, push against the DEI initiative that was there. Nietzsche writes very powerfully about this. And I, I really like the voices of minorities that are pushing back because they worked hard and they the ones that feel confident in themselves want the meritocracy. You know, poor Nietzsche, like, you know, someday he may have patients looking up at him and wondering, is he qualified? If we push so far forward with diversity, equity and inclusion. And I did take the time to actually read the, um, the basis of a lot of the DEI work, which was the critical race theory. And the interesting part about critical race theory, you know, as, as a physician, as a scientist, what I was always trained to do is, all right, if you're reading a paper, you know, or a treatise or, um, you know, a scientific study, who's the author and do they, do they have conflicts or could they possibly have bias? Well, if you look up at the authors of critical race theory, almost all of them are attorneys and they do not represent a diverse racial viewpoint. So there's, it's predominantly coming from minorities and some minorities more than others. So I think if you're going to try to fix the racial divide that we have in our country, you don't do it by going back and allowing the voice of one group or another. You know, once again, you're going to inculcate more distrust. So I don't write about DEI in particular, but I do think it's a movement that, you know, I see happening and, um, it, it can often give physicians more to do, you know, and we all kind of quietly discussed among ourselves that like medical school curriculum and residency curriculum, if we're pushing so hard to explain to people that we have to be so careful about our biases, are we diluting the rest of the medical education? It's a concern. It's a concern that we should be able to talk about without someone pointing at you and calling you a racist. I'm calling you a name because you're you're simply trying to make sure that the medical scientific portion of the education is robust. It's a reasonable question. question. Coming on the heels of that, as you can imagine, is um, what should be on the baby's birth certificate? What the doctors tell me, I've got to know whether it's male or female. I can't go in this uh, magical world of political language and ever be able to treat that 
maybe as an adult, if I can't look at that birth certificate. What do you say about that? Uh, I actually wrote an article. Um, <laughs> truth be told, I tried to get it into Newsweek. It did not make it into Newsweek, but it was published by Fox News. Uh, it was about the gender situation when the American Academy of Pediatrics said, we're going to go backwards and we're going to start looking at uh, all of the data on this. And I think to myself, like, if you're going to do a, a big review, I mean, shouldn't you do it before you're recommending medical care? Um, I do think that there has been a tremendous uptick in the number of children that identify as the gender for which the chromosomes don't match. Uh, and we're hearing a lot about this for the life of me. I think the most basic thing we can say here is medical science can not turn someone with male genitals into a functioning female, and they can't turn someone with female genitals into a fully functioning male. Shouldn't we be starting there? You know, because we we've started to hear about these young children that are taking hormones for which if they stay on their uh their intended path they're going to be they're going to have to be on some type of medication for the rest of their life if they wish to appear as much the opposite sex as the body in which they were born into um i think i think we need to i think we need to have an honest and open conversation about this as well what's possible, what's not possible, why do we think we're seeing this sudden explosion? Um, and we need to do so without people pointing fingers at those of us who are asking the questions and claiming that we're not caring about the children that have confusion. I think, like, I, I feel an awful lot of um, sympathy, and I can't say empathy because I'm I'm not in that situation, but I, I don't think that you're shaming when you're questioning whether or not that's the direction that we should go in. This is happening all over Europe. They're questioning whether or not it's appropriate to do so much gender transition, what we call the gender affirming model. And, you know, quietly, we're starting to see more and more people question whether doing that is the right thing to do. Um, the, the constant refrain that we hear, or one of the refrains that we hear, we have to do this or we're going to have a lot of deaths by suicide. I, I don't know that I, I, there certainly have been people that have been confused about their gender that committed suicide. But to me, it's akin to walking into an orthopedic office and saying, do this surgery, give me this medication, or I'm going to kill myself. It, it's not a way to practice medicine. I mean, I think we have to get a handle on why are we seeing this trend? And then, you know, back to that original, um, original question, you know, that I said, when I, when I pick up a scientific paper and I read it, are there perverse incentives to make people want to push gender affirming care by surgery by medications you know here in america i mean you know, there's there's stories out there and they're starting to get published of children that walk into clinics that had never expressed any gender uh, confusion or dysphoria in the first place and 30 minutes later they have a prescription well who's making money off that prescription you know who's What's what are the drivers that we can so quickly jump to uh, such treatment? So I, I'm not an expert in the field, but this is not what we saw 20 years ago, and now all of a sudden we have an explosion of it. Something is not making sense here. But as often in America, when we have an explosion of something, we had an explosion of COVID. We have to question who's being driven to give the care and is it the right thing for the patient? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. Well, it certainly seems to the physicians that I've talked to. Um, if Susie comes to them 
with, um, I don't know the disease, I should cite, um, just make a, a disease. The physician wants to know, is it a male or a female for treatment of the disease um, appropriately? Otherwise, the treatment is not on target or it's not being used intelligently because the premise by which the human being standing in front of them has been tinkered with. That's what I've been told. Fundamentally, that never is different at birth. A or B. Am I right or wrong? I heard that wrong. Well, there are some, now I'd have to go back and look at the instances, but there's certain, there's certain chromosomal disorders where uh, you, you know, Kleinfelter's disorder, you have two of one chromosome and one of another. So I, I believe it's XXY. So not every patient is born with either uh, two X chromosomes, which indicate female or an XY chromosome, but that's not the case that we're seeing with, to my knowledge, with most of, I, I'm not privy to these charts because I don't treat patients with gender dysphoria for gender dysphoria. But I mean, there are some patients that are born with ambiguous genitalia, say, you know, like you're, you're not, there, there are other physiological things going on with the body, with the adrenal glands, with other portions that it's not very clear at birth. But for, I would say 98, 99% of children, they're born with either XX chromosomes indicating female or XY indicating male. And I do think, you know, you're right. It's important to know the physiology of the person in front of you, but it's, um, it's interesting. Like any, what I really want to get at here is it's kind of like the same question that, that we were, or the same thing that we were discussing around COVID, uh, but we didn't state it as such. Medical care should be delivered with, the thoughts to the benefit to the patient and the risk to the patient, right? And so, uh, you know, as I told you, 90% of uh, American parents with children under the age of five chose not to get the COVID vaccination. They weighed the benefits and the risk themselves, and they went against the prevailing American Academy of Pediatrics CDC suggestions. And, you know, probably most of them are not feeling as though their children suffered from that, right? So in terms of my concern lies with what are we doing with the treatment for these children and especially the children, because I don't take care of adults. So I'm going to focus on children. Are we giving them a benefit with the treatment? And does that benefit outweigh whatever risks that they would have? And the reason it's not an unreasonable question, you know, as I pointed out, you know, some of these kids are having surgeries and there's all kinds of risks with any surgery that you do. I mean, I'm married to a surgeon it starts with the anesthesia. Anytime you cut, you have a risk of infection. So there's there's risks with, with surgeries. There's risks with medicine. You know, I say to people all the time, like, I don't, I'm actually an anti-medicine doc in general. You know, like, I, I feel like you use a medication only when you absolutely have to. Why? I mean, you know, mm. look, at, look at aspirin in children. You know, for a long time. I bet you remember that little bottle of St. Joseph's baby aspirin, right? Oh, yeah. I bet you took it when you were a kid. And then in the 70s, I believe, we discovered Rye syndrome. So uh, Rye syndrome, a child gets influenza, has a high fever, takes an aspirin, and you can totally tear apart your liver. We're talking aspirin here. And now we're asked to suspend disbelief that there might be some risks for injecting or swallowing a hormone pill every day for years, possibly decades. I, I think we have to really like... You know, I think the most important thing we can do in the debate on gender is assess the medical um, risk and benefit and do so in a very scientific manner and do so very transparently and make sure that anyone who's asking the questions, we know what their conflicts of interest are. Is it the companies that are uh, making the hormones that are speaking out? Are they paying physicians to speak out? Are they paying hospitals to speak out? I'm not saying that's what's happening, but it certainly makes me suspicious that that could happen. So um, yeah, but take a look at what I wrote uh, with Dr. Nikki Johnson of Ohio, another pediatrician. Um, 
I, I believe it was something like do no harm was in the title, you know, because that's what we should be asking in this, in this uh, setting of the gender question. Are we doing any harm? I mean, for millennia, that's been our doctrine. Do no harm. Are we doing any harm by proceeding? So uh, I, I hope that answers your question. I do feel like there were a couple others that were in the Quaqua from before that we didn't get to. The uh, $70,000 hospital bill and then the question about uh, people who are doctors who might not be physicians. And those are really good questions. Yeah, I know. I know. It goes fast. We're at 956, 55. We're going to be out of time here in a moment. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, this subject uh, is obviously dense. It's uh, complicated. Um, but it's absolutely essential that some conversation about it is available, even to the so-called layman, layperson, um, so that there's a modicum of understanding. Um, I just think that... Uh, Good health is somewhat manageable by one's own behavior, but not necessarily. There are accidents. uh, There are genetic footprints. There are predispositions to certain things. Um, It's much more complicated than, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Although I'm certainly for an apple a day. Um, I'm to the age where, Dr. Moss, I look at people walking, for example. I've become fascinated with walking. And I can tell you how old somebody is. This is the game I play. by How bent over they are walking. And, you know, whether it's the whole C, you know, where the spine is uh, over or the gait or... um, So... I would just advocate that we keep walking as much as we can, if nothing else, because a lot of us look around at where we're living. We're living in these cities where you guys are. Big, intense, high rises. We're not driving or going anywhere much. Don't you think? I mean, we really are much more sedentary. And that's a whole other discussion of itself. My gosh, like the obesity rate, it's absolutely enormous. And you're right. Uh, To tell you the truth, I live in the suburbs. I should have corrected that. Uh, We live on six acres here, and I grow a tremendous amount of my own vegetables. And uh, I'll do probably like an hour's worth of running later today. So I'm a big proponent over, you know, probably, you know, you're saying an apple a day. Well, I grow my own and can my own applesauce. (laughs) So um, it's like little hobbies, goals, right? Yeah. I think uh, also that the device that we're communicating on is a big problem as well, right? I mean, not that it's, it's great. It opens up our communication. But uh, when you said something about like the C curve, I straightened up a little because I'm thinking to myself, here I am bent over. (laughs) Oh boy. But, but you're a hundred percent right. I think, uh, you know, the number one thing that we really should tell everyone to do, although it's not always possible to avoid disease, stay as healthy as you can. And like, it's really back to basics. And we should be thinking about this from the time our children are born, what they eat, their sleep, the regularity of their sleep, that they're getting good sleep and, you know, that they're moving and they're, they're uh, exercising and they're staying active. Those are some really important things. And beyond that, mindfulness, meditation, making sure that you're mentally healthy as well. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, we'll watch for your writing. Dr. Marion Mass writes about all sorts of subjects that are of interest to us about healthcare. And we know it's a very complicated subject. Have a great day. Uh, eat that apple. <laughs> Take that run. And uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. Well, My pleasure. Command Center out. Bye bye.